Lord, I confess around this time, I'm sometimes envious of different times in history when you revealed yourself and we celebrated Easter last week, Lord. We're bringing ourselves back to the moment of your resurrection. We're remembering the events that happened historically at your crucifixion the week previous. And we're putting ourselves in the shoes of those who watched you die and witnessed your resurrection as we read your scriptures. And I find myself, Lord, sometimes envious. Wish I could have been there. Lord, but I confess that is sin this morning because what it betrays is lack of faith that your spirit can supply for the reality and my soul can be quickened just the same and your word is sufficient to speak to my great need. Lord, upon further examination, I read your word and I see how the early believers themselves, they wrestled with doubt. Even your disciple Thomas needed to touch your hands before he repented and confessed that you were risen. There were of those 500 that saw you in your resurrected form shortly before you ascended, many who doubted, it says in your word, Matthew 28. We read later of Hebrews that were converted. And the exhortation in that book, Hebrews, is keep assembling together. Don't forsake the assembling of yourself together or you will become hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. What we find, Lord, is that they were weak and desperate and in need of the Spirit as much as we are today. Lord, as much as we romanticize about different circumstances that we would trade for our own, and as much as we wish things to be different than what they are, we confess all of that is sin because we know that you have placed in our life the perfect circumstances to perfect the things that concern us, to water the seed that you've planted inside, to produce the fruit that you've ordained, And if we have trials between now and glory, and if we have setbacks or discouragements, they are, Lord, we know in your word to teach us to rely on you, to not depend on self and not have anything except for the saving work of Jesus Christ, him alone being the truth, the way and the life, being our saving hope. Lord, I pray that your word would work its way through the veneer of our soul, right cutting deep to the thoughts and intentions of our heart this morning. And if there's any who find themselves like me, who need to confess their dependency once again, that your word is sufficient and your spirit transcends time, that you would do a work in our hearts today, Lord, so we can leave here encouraged to come back again and to share in the in-between time and to be always looking forward to meeting the author and finisher of our faith and the perfection that heaven promises. Lord, we pray this in your holy name. Amen. Praise the Lord. Two passages of Scripture this morning that we'll refer to. The first in 1 Samuel chapter 19. As you're turning there, I'll give you the title of this message. And um, also, if you would bookmark Psalm chapter 11, that will be our primary text today. The title for this message is A Strategy for Despair. We're going to see how David dealt with despair in Psalm chapter 11. And we're going to explore his methods of dealing with life situations that left him at the end of his rope in more ways than one. To remind you of some of the context of David's life and perhaps a situation that might have been right around the time that Psalm chapter 11 was written or certainly could have been, we'll begin in 2 Samuel 19. You'll probably remember some of these events. David was a privileged young man, to say the least. He had been called out out of 12 brothers, the youngest and least likely in the culture, to be singled out and anointed to be king or to even pass along the, you know, the, the, the lineage and carry on the family name to the degree of prominence that the eldest would have. But this is the Lord's pattern, as we often see in Scripture using those who are least qualified in themselves and underprivileged in the world's eyes and advancing them for his own glory. So David fit that mold. There were times when God showed his triumphant power in and through David's life. David remembered those, and I think they were milestones in his life altars that he had set up, at least in his heart. The Lord is 
powerful enough to save. After all, I remember, he delivered me from a lion, from a bear, while I was just a boy watching my father's sheep. Not only that, he delivered me from a giant who was a literal human war machine. And God had given him the faith and the tools necessary to defeat that giant. But that, well, those were just a first of a few of the situations that David would find himself in, struggling to remember that God is powerful enough to save and to deliver. And I imagine rehearsing over and over again his own experience with the work of the Lord. But here's one of these times when it would have been so demanding on him as he was serving at this time in Saul's court, who was king at the time, David had been anointed to succeed him. Saul did not recognize this. Contrary, it was contrary to the anointing that was on David's life, Saul was at, sometimes, at times possessed by the devil, actively opposing God's call on David. In 1 Samuel chapter 19, we'll read verses 9 through 11. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he eluded Saul, so that he struck the spear into the wall. Then David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. We'll read on here. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. In verse 13, Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. She created a dummy there laying in the bed to make it look like David was still there. Presumably when the soldiers came in to kill him, to buy David more time on his escape route to run away, from Saul, who had just tried to throw a spear right through his heart. This was one of the situations that no doubt led David to write a psalm like the one we'll read in moments, Psalm chapter 11. Before we turn there, in chapter 20 of this book, 1 Samuel, read verse 3. As David spills out his heart to his best friend Jonathan, who was Saul's son, David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. David was trying to impress upon his friend that I am in real danger here. And you can see the lingering sense of danger and anxiety that was in David's heart. There was but a step between me and death. How long did David live in that mental frame of mind, that condition where he felt like he was just one step between him and death? If he made a little too much noise sneaking away in the night, a a hundred arrows might pierce his midsection. If he took the wrong turn on a road between a hostile city and a desert hideout, would he be accosted on the way by troops representing Saul? Anxious for the bounty that was on his head. David lived years, years with only a single step, a hair's breadth, if you will, between him and death. If you would turn with me to Psalm chapter 11. A man acquainted with trials such as these, I wonder how he wrestles with making it through another day. I can imagine being David for a short time. But I certainly can't imagine living under that kind of stress, anxiety, danger, and reality of death and threat hanging over your head for years. The Spirit of the Lord kept David sane during this time. And if you, as you read the book of Psalms, you might see that he's wrestling indeed with his own mental sanity and his own mental health. But he knows the weapons of his warfare that will heal his soul. In I was studying this week, and it has been said that the book of Psalms is answering language. It's how to respond to God, how to respond to God in virtually any situation. And David, by God's grace, and for our benefit, I'm not so sure his, at least he didn't feel it at the time, 
found himself in so many perilous situations that he became kind of the prototype for spiritual war in the Old Testament, kind of the prototype believer to look to to see how in every eventuality God is powerful enough to save. It doesn't matter if your life is threatened when you're young or when you're old, when you're poor or when you're a king, when you're hated by your brothers or by the whole nation. It doesn't matter if you have wealth, prosperity, influence, and riches, or if you are out there as a fugitive running for your life. At every moment in your life, David knew what we should all realize. You are one step away from death. But God holds you together, keeps you safe. And the steps of a good man, as the word says, are ordered by the Lord. And he delights in his way. And though he fall, he will not be cast down. For the Lord upholds him with his right hand. Read with me, if you will, Psalm chapter 11 in this context. First of all, the title, it says, To the choir master, and then of David. So we know that this was a song to be sung by a choir in a church service like this, and it was written by David. Verse 1, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend the bow, they have fitted their arrow in the string, to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, <clears throat> what can the righteous do? Verse 4, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let Him rain coals on the wicked, Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold His face. Notice as we go back over this psalm just one more time and take a few cues as to its structure. David opens with this confession. In the Lord I take refuge. And then he's going to answer maybe a hypothetical question, maybe a real question, but certainly a lingering thought in his soul when he was under duress. And he answers it by saying, how can you say to my soul something like this? And then the quotations are from flee like a bird to what can the righteous do? So in the Lord, I take refuge. So, and so under that, with that presupposition in place, with that established, how can you then say, flee like a bird to your mountains? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted the arrow for the, to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And then he goes back to his statements that show the resolve of his faith. The Lord is in the holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. While I was studying this week and preparing this message, a thought in our modern context occurred to me, and I wondered if David suffered ever from what would be today diagnosed as post-traumatic stress disorder. I wonder if David wrestled with flashbacks in the night hour, the physiological, the psychological repercussions of constant war. He would have been a likely candidate for such a debilitating mental wrestling. He certainly would have been one who would know that you can escape a spear, but it's a lot harder to run away from a nightmare. He would be one that would understand it takes an entirely different skill set, if you will, to dodge a bullet than it takes to dodge depression. It takes an entirely different set of armaments, tools, weapons of war to dodge a spear of Saul than it would a thought that would stick in your mind that would drive you crazy. A thought like, if the foundations are destroyed, what will the righteous do? Understand the underlining despair in that question, and no doubt David wrestled with it. Today, he might have well 
gotten diagnosed with some type of disorder. Well, David had a strategy for dealing with despair. A strategy for despair, the title of this message, I think you can draw from this text right here just a few things that are a pattern in the Psalms. What if he faced the reality of death at any moment? What if he remembered that there was thousands who were allied with Saul to destroy his life? What if God had made promises to him, but now it seemed like they were on beyond all hope of being fulfilled? especially as you look at the circumstances. Point one of this message is strategy for despair. Perhaps you could say uh, one concept of David's wrestling as he does so candidly in Scripture. Identify the invisible spear. I just wrote this phrase as a reminder for myself that when a spear comes by way of physical pain or even the threat of death, there's a second spear in the spirit realm. It's perhaps in some ways even more dangerous. It's not as tangible, but it is the thought of doubt and fear that would accompany a trying situation. David understood that you could evade Saul's spear, but his whole life had changed now. He understood when he talked to Jonathan and he was trying to make him understand, I'm a fugitive now. Don't you understand? My entire life has changed. I can't live a normal life. There's a price on my head, I'm under the threat of death, and I will live for an indefinite amount of time under these type of circumstances. He could dodge the spear of destruction for his physical body, but the spear of despair took a whole different shield to defend. In the New Testament, that shield is referred to as the shield of faith. How do you prepare against the spear, if you will, of despair? That intangible weapon of the enemy. See, the enemy is less concerned about taking your life. He is less concerned about destroying your physical life and more concerned with bagging your soul, if you will. There's a bounty on your soul. That's his main concern. He will take whatever extremes he can to tamper with circumstances and external affairs for the chief end of his dubious design to take away your joy to saddle you with defeat, to let the roots of despair work so deep within your soul that you become a slave and a captive to depression. David somehow was able to evade that second spear. First of all, he identified it as a reality. He knew that he needed to have the shield of faith there. He understood that for a refuge from Saul's spear, might look like running away into the wilderness, even have strong men allied with you. After a period of time, David was able to defend himself quite handily. But David still lived with the threat of despair. He couldn't defend himself handily against depression by the cohorts that he had gathered around him, mighty men of valor, when he knew that he really deserved to be ruling this kingdom. Yet the foundations of the whole kingdom were so screwed up that under this regime, David himself was illegal. David was against the law in Saul's kingdom. Imagine that. My life is illegal. It's against the law of the land for me to continue to live. Everything must have seemed at certain times to face him and to stare him down and to challenge not just his life, but indeed his joy. David writes, verse 1, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, essentially, take refuge in anything else? Identify the invisible sphere and then lift up the shield of faith, a shield of faith that would confess, in spite of every other measure I take, ultimately, on the heart level and in my consciousness, in the Lord I take refuge. Point number two, a strategy for despair. Sorting the voices in your head. Sorting out the voices in your head. These could come by way of advice that well-meaning friends give. They could come by way of despair, discouragement that you feel in the heat of the moment. They could come by way of first reactions. You know, the response and the reaction that your mind might have to prepare yourself. A kind of self-defense mechanism in your heart. David When he poured out his heart in the Psalms, there seemed to be a sorting going on. Certainly was the case here. 
which voices are the ones from the enemy of my soul and which ones are from the Lord. This psalm deals with with advice that perhaps sounds reasonable under the circumstances of trial, but in the end, they deny the essentials of your faith. And this is so important for today's world. We We have embraced a whole toolbox of tools to deal with despair, the invisible spear, if you will, depression, discouragement. We really are a despairing people in many ways. If the use of these tools that we have resorted to to deal with all these issues are any measure, more and more diagnoses and medications come along by the day, by the week, to deal with pain that is in some ways intangible and danger that is so much harder to wrap our arms around than the threat of even life itself. It's a mental struggle that many of us in this culture find us battling on a daily basis. But it's so important to realize that the advice you get for how to deal with despair must be sorted according to Scripture. Advice that sounds reasonable under the circumstances must be held accountable to God's word because it could deny an essential of the faith. I don't know who David is responding to, and I don't think it matters specifically in this text. David says to maybe the hypothetical person, maybe the voices in his head, maybe the advice he gets from somebody who cares about him but doesn't know the Lord, He says, how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountains? For behold, the wicked bend their bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the uprighted heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? In other words, David doesn't tell us exactly who's telling us, telling him these discouraging words. It could have been an enemy that was mocking him. It could have been one that was just prematurely celebrating the defeat. Of David could have been Saul himself celebrating a victory that was premature. Oh, flee like a bird, your mountain. Oh, go ahead, run away again. Couldn't you see Saul confessing such a thing? He approaches on the hill with his army, and there in the distance is a small cloud of dust, and somehow he knows that's David and the few rabble rousers that he has with them escaping to some faraway town. Saul's not willing to spend the money and keep the army going, but he might say something like, Oh, sure, flee, little bird, to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend their bow. They have fitted their arrows. And you could see in this sense that Saul would have been confessing that strength and force of the whole law, of the whole nation, of the standing army was against you. They had the tactical advantage. They had fitted the arrows for their bows. They were prepared to ambush him even in the night hour, to shoot in the dark at the upright. They had proposed, perhaps in the attitude of their heart, to remove the foundations under which he stood until he would eventually give in and crumble. So the voice could have been one of a mocker, somebody that was openly mocking David, despising God's anointing on his life, and declaring prematurely, as I say, victory. But this voice could have been someone else. It might have just been a friend that really cared about David, but didn't really know how to answer for the threat of despair. It could have been a well-meaning, as I say, confidant. Maybe someone with a kind of empty empathy. Flee like a bird to your mountain. You know, I I don't know what to tell you, except it's hard to see any hope here. The wicked bend their bow. I mean, obviously the whole army is against you. They've fitted their arrow in the string to shoot in the dark at the upright. I mean, and how many people do you know confess this kind of despair? I'll tell you what, in America today, in the church today, in my family today, you know, looking at the dysfunctional situation of any of those three scenarios, by example, if the foundations are destroyed, I don't know what the righteous are going to do. And a lot of times people who don't want to be under oppression, confess this same kind of lack of faith, where it's an empty empathy. But the advice is that, you know, do the best you can. I'm there with you, man, but I just don't see an end in sight. I think the way the psalm is ordered teaches us that both of these approaches, whether it's an empty empathy 
or openly mocking, fight against faith. Advice that will equip you to stand in the face of the intangible enemy must be in accordance with faith that can only come with the confession of God's truth in God's word. No matter how wicked this nation becomes, it is not hopeless, believer. No matter how dysfunctional or trying your marriage may be or your family might display, it is not hopeless. It is not beyond repair. No matter how many setbacks you have in your past, God has the ability through His redemptive blood to piece together in a way that's more beautiful than anyone could imagine a story of redemption that would only further advance His glory given the testimony of your past. We are never beyond saving. When I, this Monday, Lord willing, I'll be speaking at a tea party rally. I, th- there's a group that I'm kind of become friends with of people that are community-minded in our area. They recognize a problem, and they are willing to see that we're in dire straits. And there will be some, I trust, that will come to this rally. But my heart at this rally is to say something that will help us to fight not just the enemies of whatever we perceive today, like socialism and abandoning the roots of our founding and the increased debt that we're incurring and our children are incurring today and, you know, fighting against those terms. But my heart is to try to take something from Scripture to say that our situation is never beyond repair as long as we align ourselves with the truth of Scripture. There is always hope. What do the righteous do? When they themselves are illegal, we're not illegal. We're not as bad. We don't have it as bad as David did. It was against the law for him to be alive, let alone have a church somewhere. What if it was against the law for us to be alive and we're tempted to despair now? What would we do then? Would we give up hope entirely? Would we kill ourselves, God forbid? The message from Scripture is, even if the foundations are crumbling, there is a sovereign to which we can make our appeal, whose foundation is built on something that transcends this earth. And here the message of hope comes in in verse 4. In stark contrast to the crumbling foundations and the temporary things of this life, the Lord, verse 4, is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, His eyelids test the children of man. So whether it's a corporate example like I've just mentioned or it's an individual example like we mentioned before, no matter what the foundations of your life look like as far as their state of disrepair, you can always bring your appeal to the Lord who is always on the throne of His holy temple. This brings up point number three for a strategy for despair. You identify despair for what it is, a weapon for the enemy to dispirit your faith. Number two, you sort out the voices in your head and only listen, only listen to the ones that are true to Scripture. But then number three, hold your perception of reality accountable to the same. Hold your perception of reality accountable to Scripture. Do you see the naysayers said, okay, this is reality. The wicked bend their bow. The evil man has all the power. That's just the way things are. There's a, a pundit on the radio that has a philosophical statement that I hate every time I hear it. He says, we live in a world that's governed by the aggressive use of force. That is his take, his perception on reality. I don't live in that world. I live in a world that's governed by an almighty providential hand of God. I live in a world that's governed by a linear view of history that has the second coming of Christ as its goal and has creation as its original intent. And I'm somewhere in between trying to humbly submit to God's purposes for me between A and B. I don't live in a world that's held captive to every will and whim by the wicked who are powerful enough to bend his bow. Yes, there are those who appear to successfully mock God for a season. But how many of them have lived past 100 years? You could probably count them on maybe one or two hands. How many of them have lived to 200 years? Virtually none, certainly none post-Diluvian era. 
and prior to, they all met the same fate. They're rotting in hell eternal if they didn't confess their faith. And the old sovereign power, their bow only gave them confidence for a few short years. And then the fire, the brimstone, the scorching wind, and the sulfur was the reality of their eternity, is the reality of their their eternity. I live in a world that's governed by a God who sits in a holy temple, and you do too, believer. Hold your perception of reality accountable to Scripture. They have the tactical advantage, the naysayer says. They have their arrows fitted for the string. They're there at every turn. They're waiting in ambush in the dark. You could read that verse a different way, to shoot in the dark at the upright. Maybe David means it's like a shot in the dark at the upright. You know, they think they're so powerful, but it's like a shot in the dark. They don't have the ability that God does to know exactly where all of his enemies are at any given time. They can't call fire from heaven to eliminate a city like Sodom, a city like Gomorrah. They can't call down a lightning bolt from heaven to judge in a moment Ananias and Sapphira. They just go on scorched earth campaigns to try to show that they are omnipotent like God. But in the end, they're always proven small and foolish. And they become a byword for the next generation. No, our world is not defined by the aggressive use of force as people use it in this life. Our world is defined by the Lord who is in his holy temple and his throne who is in heaven. That is, his power is transcendent. And his eye sees and his eyelids test the children of man. I just gave you a corporate example of a false philosophy how the defeatist attitude sees history not linear, not God as sovereign, but themselves inevitably captive to wickedness. And if the foundations are gone, no hope for their future. It gets even more troubling in some ways to me as people are willing to concede the reality of their condition on a personal level. That is, they might think there's really no hope for themselves to be happy again, to have a functional life to be victorious, to have a vision for the aim of what God has called them to be and to see themselves arriving at that place by His grace at some point in the future. David, after all, was faced with this individual reality. I mean, everything looked as if he would never sit on that throne, yet he was God's anointed king. You and me are a royal priesthood. We're a holy generation. We're a warrior in God's kingdom against whom the gates of hell cannot prevail against. But our personal perception of reality is sometimes less than what Scripture says we are. We don't often see ourselves with the overcoming power of Christ himself alive inside, the same power that raised him from the dead, now quickening your mortal body. But that is the truth. Hold their perception of God's purposes for your life accountable to the reality of Scripture. Years ago, I was only a teenager at the time, maybe 14. I just remember this clear as day. It was one of those moments that I don't think I'll ever forget. I was sitting in the Dairy Queen at Crosby. My dad was with me. There were two other gentlemen there. And we were talking about taxes or some situation or one of these guys had gone through a recent divorce, something along those lines. And these two gentlemen that were with my dad and I, one of them at the close of the conversation, at the, at the you know, just talking about their, their miseries or trials or whatever, said, you know, life is a merry-go-round. And the other guy said, yep, and we're the clowns that ride it. And it's funny on its face, isn't it? Yeah, life is a merry-go-round, and we're the clowns that ride it. Uh, the guy, I shudder to think at the end of the story, the guy that said, we're the clowns that ride it, ride it eventually committed suicide. Um, I wonder if the Lord just let me remember that so that I don't take people's confession or attitude trivially. It's easy to laugh at something like that, but if that represents what we truly believe, life is aimless has no hope, it's an endless cycle of pain, and all you have to do is look at my past to know that's what I can expect in the future. That's where your attitude is. It's a self-defeating attitude, and you may have spiritually already committed suicide in a way. You may have already 
taken your own spiritual life without realizing it, but now I want to pause right here and enter with the hopeful message of the gospel. Even if you have confessed by your attitude in your heart that your situation or the corporate situation of where you are and live is irreparable, the power of Christ says differently, and as long as there is today, you can repent and confess the reality of Scripture and say, Lord, I was in sin for saying that you had no purpose for my life. And I was in sin for living like I would had no hope for anything beyond just being a slave to these inevitably horrible circumstances. I see that you conquered death and the grave and have a new reality for me. So I confess my sin and place my hope in you. Now, every time I'm tempted by that spear of despair, I pray that you would remind me of the joy of my salvation. David was reminded sometimes daily through his Psalms of the joy of his salvation. And it became an armor for him to fight the intangible weapons of the enemy, the despair and the discouragement. He confessed that the Lord was in his holy temple. Where is Christ in this passage? I submit it's right there. God had a temple for his people. He had made intercession on their behalf. He had established a mediatory uh, institution so they could know him. He had made a bridge between them and heaven. The temple represented what Christ would become. We explored that at depth at Easter. But the fact that there was a way for man to go to to plead, make an appeal at the temple of God at his house to cry out for forgiveness of his sins, to bring a lamb or something like that as a sacrifice and trust that the priest would would sacrifice it on his behalf and that his sins would be covered, at least symbolically. That was a voice of the Lord saying, I am in my holy temple and I have made a way to commune with you, depraved sinner, by one day offering my own son, as your righteousness by being crucified for your sins. God is in his holy temple. He intercedes on our behalf. He mediates his truth. He did so with his servant Moses. Moses was given God's laws. The finger of God wrote on tablets of stone. Those laws were read by all. We read them today. Just turn back to the book of Exodus and you can read them this morning if you like. God mediated through his high priest Aaron. Aaron's rod budded as we discovered it showed that God had a way and he would have a perfect high priest one day who by the power of an indestructible life would once and for all take care of the problem of the distance between sinful man and a holy God. But even in this day, there were priests who would take their censers and and intercede on behalf of the people. And when Aaron did that, he was able to stand between the people and a plague that had killed 14,700 But once God intervened through his holy temple at the time, the plague stopped. And God intervenes in our life today through his son, Jesus Christ, and our despair can stop dead in its tracks. The Lord, he's enthroned in heaven. And this simply says that the foundation can never ultimately be destroyed because true power transcends this earth. And it is impossible to unseat God from his throne. After all, earth is his footstool and heaven is his throne. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of men. What does this mean? It's poetic language for an omnicompetent, omniscient judge, leaning forward, squinting, seeing right through your stuttering lie, and knowing that you are saying something that is not true. God knows right into the heart of every man. So just confess your sins, the message. He sees those who pretend to be him. He stares right through his eyes. His eyelids are fixed. He can cut right through the facade in all of the things that they had engineered for themselves to make them feel good and powerful straight to the heart of man, knowing that he's dealing with wickedness. Now we go on in verse five and God, we find, does test the righteous. So here there is hope for your trying circumstances. And verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Just by way of review, again, we're kind of trying to outline a strategy for despair following David's train of thought in this psalm. Identify that invisible spear. You can call out despair for what it is. Secondly, sort the voices in your head. 
Thirdly, hold your perception of reality accountable to Scripture. But number four, remember what the future holds. In the short term, we can expect trials. The future for the believer is one that is attended with tests and trials. But they're very short, their days are numbered, and they're nothing to compare with the rest that is promised in heaven. And verse 5 again, the Lord tests the righteous, but, the soul, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Notice the juxtaposition there. On, on the one hand, God tests the righteous. Then he says he, his soul hates the wicked. So you, could, you see there that test is, a, is substituted for love. He could just as easily be saying God loves the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. He instead says God tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. This reminds me of Hebrews 12, where a father, a good one, chastens those whom he loves. It's a sign of God's love when your way is attended with trial. It's a sign of God's love and his chastising grace on your life, even when you wrestle with the threat of despair. That is the future that we have in the short term. But as we remember what our future holds, don't forget, ultimately, that we will see him face to face. We go on to read in verse 7, For the Lord is righteous, He loves righteous deeds, the upright shall behold His face. Remember your cup, or what the future holds. In the short term, the Lord tests the righteous, but in the long term, we will behold His face. Some translations say countenance. Imagine the glowing countenance of a father who's just come home, it's easy for me to, uh, relate to because I experience this almost daily now as a dad. Come home, you open the door, and your thought is that you just can't wait for the little guys to tear around the corner and start yelling at you because they want to be heard first. And it's loud, and you know, some, Israel particularly has got kind of a shrill voice. Just has got these booming pipes. And you know, if you were in any other frame of mind, pipe down, kids. But my face is glowing with the, with the countenance of a dad who has a love that's unconditional for his children in that moment. Because when they're trying to talk louder than the next, they're just vying for their daddy's attention. When they're trying to come up with a bigger and better story with eyes wide and jumping around and gestures and pictures drawn, they see on the face of their father a countenance of one who is about to gather his children into his arms as a loving father would. That same father, yes, me, does discipline his children. And there are times, and I hope that I reflect ever more so, the grace, the love, the unconditional acceptance that my heavenly father has for me. But when I think of that, it sure helps me face even the trials that my own children present. But imagine yourself with me, like Israel and Justice one day, jumping up and down at the pearly gates, waiting for them to be flung open, when we finally come home and our dad is home from his redemptive work once and for all, and the glowing countenance that is on his face as he gathers every one of his beloved adopted sons and daughters into his holy heavenly arms in heaven forever. No sin anymore. Nothing anymore. Except for indulging, basking, celebrating, glorifying that omniscient power, that omnipotent love that glorious eternity with him. This is what the future holds for you. Every single one of you right now, just about, has a smile on your face. As I was telling that story, where did the despair go? If you're wrestling with any as you came in, it was gone in that brief moment, wasn't it? As you contemplated the love of an unconditional heavenly father. What a great strategy for wrestling with despair in the future remembering what the future holds. I want, I'm tempted to, to stop there because it leaves me on this kind of high. But there's another truth that is right alongside here, and I don't want to leave his word without declaring it. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup, for the Lord is righteous. 
The portion of their cup poetically means what their future holds. And it's immediately apparent the analogy or the coordinating story that is in view here of Sodom and Gomorrah. Even as the righteous suffer under oppression, we might ask, where is justice? And when will that day come? This verse promises the righteous that it is forthcoming. And it reminds the wicked that it is imminent. And it also describes the degree of justice when God meters it out and you find yourselves opposed to him on that day. And it is an eventuality to fear. Sulfur raining from heaven. A scorching wind and fire, coals, hailstones ablaze, falling on your head, pounding you into the ground, incessantly torturing you to no end. If this isn't a picture of hell, you know, we're never going to find one. This is what it looks like to be caught, to be caught in the hot seat on the day of judgment when there is no more appeal left for you to take advantage of the Lord in his holy temple. And that day will come. That day will come when you'll be driving or they, the wicked, will be driving down the road and there won't be a church open on a Sunday to come through the door and hear the truth anymore. There won't be a dusty leather cover on your shelf that you can open and turn to John 16 anymore. You won't be able to reach into your jeans and pull out that tattered track that that freak gave you on a street corner who kept talking about eternity and hell and I'm wicked. There will come a day when the last appeal cannot be, is done. It's closed. And whether it's in this life or ultimately in time, its certainty is inevitable. And as believers, that ought to inspire us to, yes, witness with a passion, but also express in all reverence and fear, glory to our Redeemer. And it also, when that truth is on our lips and our heart, and that imminence, that time is short, is even in our attitude and the way we carry ourselves and live our lives, it ought to tell the world around that there is a hell to shun. These are the perspectives that help us and have a strategy for despair. How can the reality of hell help you deal as a strategy with despair, one might ask. Well, how much easier is it to endure a trial in this life knowing it conditions you to be more sanctified for his presence than it is with only hell to expect forever? If you go through a trial knowing it's the closest thing you'll ever experience to hell, you can ultimately embrace it with endurance, with perseverance and joy. On the other hand, if you have only hell to look forward to, it ought to bring a shudder from the head to toe of every wicked man. The closing point of this message, strategy for despair, the final point is to take action. What action would David take when he was wrestling with such a thing? Well, he would write a song like this, or he would sing a song like this. The title of this psalm itself, To the Choir Master of David. Hebrews, we mentioned earlier in this service, it, it, it tells us, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Don't become hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. If you sense the recourse options diminishing in your life, if you hear the knuckles of, des of despair rapping at the door of your heart, and it seems like it's rattling on its hinges, then I would encourage you to do as David would, increase your attendance in his holy temple as it were. Don't stay away from God's people as you struggle with despair or depression. You see, a lot of these things are self-defeating. We don't want to hang out and socialize when we're at our lowest moments. But for the Lord, it's a prescription for our own mental and spiritual health. We are to join a choir and sing a song like this if we feel ourselves captive to the weapons of despair. We are to put aside our pity and our loneliness and, and run to God's people and bring our appeal before him if we find ourselves in such a position. So if you sense that all other recourses are really coming up short and you don't know where to turn in the depth of this trial, don't let your temple attendance be lackluster. If you do so, you're even in, 
are in even more danger of the spear of despair. But instead, take some advice, some counsel from David in his strategy for despair and run to that holy temple. And as you do so, identify what the enemy is trying to do to you. Sort out those naysaying voices. Hold them accountable to Scripture. And then remember what your future holds. And lastly, take action. Join with the believers. Make your requests known before the Lord. And call a brother or sister in Christ for prayer. I, I think it's pretty simple, but it's also difficult to follow. So as we close in just a few moments in prayer, I want to pray for myself or for you. If you wrestle with this or know somebody that is wrestling with this, that the Holy Spirit would inspire them to take steps like David did so that we can return to the joy of our salvation. Close your eyes if you would with me and bow your head and we'll commit our souls to the Lord. Dear Jesus, we thank you for the testimony of your work in the heart of a real individual. We see that in the life of David and the life of so many others that are recorded here. Father, it gives us faith that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, Lord, but instead they're sharp, applicable, effective, and mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. The things that the world cannot conceive of an answer to, you have given us answers in your word. Lord, depression and despair hopelessness holds so many millions today captive but there is freedom in christ he whom the son sets free is free indeed that is true of his mind and his body and his future i pray lord that we would entrust our souls to the care of an almighty god who sits on the throne in his temple above this earth and rules and reigns with perfect knowledge and insight who tests the righteous who gives them just what they need to cry out to him, who ultimately holds judgment and mercy in the palm of his hand and has, through the blood of his Son, made a way for us to be the happiest of all peoples that ever lived. Lord, may it be said of us as we seek to embrace your strategy for dealing with our own weakness. In Jesus' name, amen.